Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hi, this is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Villander. This is Mary Carrillo. I'm Stan Wawrinka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. I'm Andy Murray. And you're listening to The Tennis Podcast. Hi, folks. Hope you're doing okay, staying sane, staying well. Um, this is our third tennis podcast of this week we think it is the first time we've ever released three tennis podcasts outside of tournament time which um is pretty good going given there's not a tennis tournament in sight at the moment so uh, we're doing our best to to keep you entertained to keep you abreast of all the um breaking news in the tennis world at the moment, of which there is quite a lot, courtesy of uh, Roger Federer et al. We'll be back with more podcasts next week. Uh, Monday, we'll have our worst of tennis podcast predictions show. And uh, if Matt's research teases or anything to go by, I'm in for quite a hammering. <laughs> um, but that's for Monday. For today, um, we've got the entirety of the Pam Shriver interview. Uh, you had a little bit of it in our Tennis Relived show earlier this week when we were talking about the Fed Cup final of, uh, or the Fed Cup in 1986 in Prague and Pam's recollections of, of that experience. Her teammate and doubles partner Martina Navratilova returning to uh, her native Czechoslovakia for the first time since defecting to the United States. Well, Pam was fascinating on a whole range of uh, of subjects, as you would expect. Um, so we wanted to bring you the whole interview. Just a bit of housekeeping before I leave you with Pam, and that is to correct a pronunciation from our Tennis Relived show earlier in the week when we ran a section um, of this Pam Shriver interview. It was Frank DeFord, who is the co-author of Pam's book, Passing Shots, uh, that we referenced. Frank DeFord was the co-author of that book. So without further ado, I will leave you with the fascinating and charming Pam Shriver. Here she is in full. Enjoy. Thank you so much um, for doing this. It's an absolute treat to have you, Pam. Um, and uh, yeah, in very strange circumstances, obviously, for everybody in the world, not just the tennis world, you're joining us from California, I believe. How how are things over there? How How's lockdown? How are you coping yeah. with the situation and the, the lack of tennis in all our lives? Well, I would say overall, um, I'm really proud of my three teenagers at a time when teenagers want to distance themselves from their parents. They've accepted what has to be done. I feel like California and, and the mayor of Los Angeles, you know, I, I live, we live uh, in Los Angeles. So 
we've had some leadership both at the state level and, and at the city level that has been really strong, very consistent. And um, I, I think that's one of the reasons why um, our part of the United States has actually done much better than expected. And I'm pleased that the generation who the order to stay at home is really counterintuitive to what they want, but um, there's been a lot of acceptance. And I can tell you as a homeowner, 16 years ago, bought a property with a private tennis court. Our tennis court is one of the reasons why a couple of us in the family have kept better sanity. (laughs) (laughs) How much are you missing professional tennis right now? Well, you know, I missed Indian Wells because it would have been an easy drive. Um, I missed that one the most. Um, I will tell you, because of my the busyness of my home life, regardless of a pandemic or even if I'm just driving my three kids around, and uh, the, the level of detail that I would follow the chore from week to week is um, not as detailed as it would be, say, like when I worked for ESPN at Melbourne and maybe the, the weeks leading up to Melbourne so that I knew you know, what was going on in the lead up tournament. So for me personally, uh, I haven't missed it that much, but we haven't yet um, gone past one of the, the, the tournaments I think would impact us the most, which would be say for, for me, Roland Garros and, and then Wimbledon. I mean, um, I thought the tennis world did a great job of leading. I mean, it was a tough call for Indian Wells. I remember that Sunday night when it was called, um, it took everybody by little bit by surprise, but it just started the domino effect of what this um, virus and the effects on the world sports. Um, it just started a series of closures around the world. Yeah, it's starting to look like um, a very prescient call, isn't it, by by that tournament. Um, looking at your, uh, your social media, you look like you've taken the opportunity uh, <laughs> during lockdown to have the most neatly and and cleanly arranged trophy shelf in in all of sport, <laughs> I reckon, Pam. <laughs> yeah, well, one of my first, uh, during lockdown, one of the first things I was thinking, well, what little uh, things can I post? Uh, what content would be interesting? And I thought, all right, well, my mantle for tennis fans would be interesting to see uh, the, the major championship doubles trophies, most of which I won with Martina. There was a U.S. Open with uh, Natasha Zverev and... There was some Fed Cup stuff. There was recognition of our Grand Slam doubles year, as well as the year I got the finals of the U.S. Open uh, in singles at 16. So I thought it was kind of a fun tour. And I guess most of the stuff I posted, that one had the most views. And I think it just shows you um, how much people want to see one way or another uh, or, or touch in any way major tennis. Yeah, absolutely. And all of those things that, that you just mentioned there, I, I really want to talk about. First and first and foremost, your your partnership with Martina Navratilova, 74 doubles titles together, including 20 Grand Slams. You're, you're still the most successful women's doubles partnership of all time. What What made you such a great partnership, the two of you? Well, I think there were a lot of things. Um, I think when you look at how we played our singles, um, the style of play with Sir Volley back in the the 80s, that was kind of, that's how you played doubles back then too. So it was really, uh, our our singles games translated into being great doubles players naturally. The lefty-righty combination, if you look in tennis history, whether it's Newcomb Roach, whether it's uh, the Bryan Twins, whether it's McEnroe Fleming, um, there's a lot of great, 
lefty righty doubles teams. I just think, you know, the, the choice of who serves, if the sun's tough for a righty, there's just a lot of things that are beneficial to, to having a lefty righty. Um, our personalities, you don't have a partnership that long if your personalities don't gel well. Um, we enjoyed each other. Um, our senses of humor clicked in. Um, there were a lot of those matches through the years where we would play after Martina was the featured match at night. Um, so we played and we had to wait late night tennis. Um, so if you didn't enjoy each other and, and our coaches got along well, we, obviously we had teams that were much smaller back then. My team was generally just one. Martina was one of the first that brought in teams of more than one. Um, but our teams got along well. And so it just led to who knew that January 81 would lead to um, what it ended up leading to. It was, I think, autumn of 1980 that Martina called you to ask her to be your your partner, her partner. What do you remember about that phone call? Well, I was at Deer Creek Country Club in Deerfield Beach, Florida, having a late practice. And um, I remember Lee Jackson, longtime referee for the tour. And um, she came out and, uh, you know, it was years and years before anyone had a cell phone or, yeah, and said, Martina's on the phone. And I mean, whoever I was practicing with, they, it was the practice was abandoned. I ran in, <laughs> got her, got on the phone in the WTA tour office. And, um, you know, she asked me, she doesn't mix her words or she didn't, there weren't a lot of pleasantries, just asked me if I had a commitment to a doubles partner for the next year. And I said, no, I did not. I had just, in the U.S. Open just a month prior, I'd, I'd gotten to the finals with Betty Stova in Betty Stova's last tournament, and we lost to Billie Jean King and Martinez. I think it was six and six or five and five, and I think that was probably the last indicator that Martina needed that she 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 was looking for a younger partner, you know, that was starting her career, could play for a period of time, and so it was obvious. It, I didn't even have to break a commitment, thank God, because if I'd had a commitment to somebody. I mean, that would have been a tough a tough one to pass on playing doubles with Martina, so I'm glad it worked out that I didn't have a commitment to a partner. I'll um I'll confess to a, a tip off here from uh, from Mary Carrillo, but she has suggested that that I ask you about asking Martina to sign a cocktail napkin to seal <laughs> to seal your team together forever. Uh, yeah, well, we had already been together a long time because we, we, we went through a stage, I think, uh, springtime of 84, we lost in the Tournament of Champions in Orlando, and then we didn't lose again for um, over two years. So I think it was 109 straight matches. Um, when we hit uh, 100 wins, and it was in Eastbourne, so the tournament director, George Hendon, threw a party for us that night, and we were celebrating... Uh, to, to the history of tennis, no one can remember a doubles team ever hitting 100 wins in a row. So um, I, I decided to take that moment. I wrote a contract on a on a paper napkin that says, I, Martina Navratilova, promise always to play doubles with Pam Shriver. And I had a witness line that George Hendon was signed. And as I stood up to give the toast and give the contract to Martina, my head ended up in a lampshade. So it was kind of like... It was funny, and it was. I have that. I ha, I still have that cocktail napkin somewhere, but it's back in Baltimore, my hometown, um, collecting dust, but will not be thrown out. A hundred and nine matches is is truly extraordinary. April nineteen eighty three to July nineteen eighty five. Did you 
Did you feel invincible as a team? Well, a lot of those matches, we we went into the matches knowing we were going to win them, but there was a handful that were incredibly dicey. And I remember one in particular that was uh, right in the middle. Well, it was about win number 75, and it was in Madison Square Garden uh, against our longtime rival. They were generally the number two team behind us for many of those years, um, Sokova, Helena Sokova and Claudia Kota-Kilsch. And we came down to a tie break in the final set. And I remember it was five all. Uh, it was late in the tie break. And whatever, I was returning and Martina just said, return it low and I'm going to go. And I'm like, yes, ma'am. You know, like you want it. <laughs> that was great. It was like a plan. Now, of course, then you still have to execute it. But I remember as soon as I hit the return, I'm like, that's going to be a low. It was a good return. She timed her poach perfectly, put it away, and then we won the next point on serve. So that was the hairiest moment. That was when we came within two points of losing. But other than that, I don't remember a match where we were like match points down. We we won a lot of those matches during that streak in straight sets. I uh, I just watched today the the speeches that both you and Martina gave when you were inducted into the the Tennis Hall of Fame. And Martina alluded uh, very tantalizingly to some of the chats that you guys had. At, at changeovers, um, but she didn't. She didn't give too much detail. Can you can you share something of of what those chats were like at change events? I went into the International Tennis Hall of Fame with Mats Vlander, uh, and it was an amazing weekend for for both of us. And Martina was great to fly to into Rhode Island to um, present me. And you know what I remember about our change events? I can't say I remember exactly word for word because it's a long time ago. But that would often be the time where if the match was tense, we might speak half of the change events about tactics, but we would also know the importance of keeping ourselves light. And um, maybe there would be something funny that would be said. It could be something funny about something we observed in the crowd, about uh, another player who knows just something that would make us laugh. Because one of the things that we realized then is a partnership And I think I realize now in life, whether it's in parenting or when I commentate, that the use of humor at the right time is a great tool. And and also, by the way, during a pandemic, the use of humor and laughter is really important. Yeah, absolutely. Here, here. We're um, we're going to be looking back this weekend on the Fed Cup of 1986 um, and kind of an extraordinary moment in 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 tennis history for for a number of reasons the uh the the return of martina navratilova to czechoslovakia i think for the first time in in nearly 12 years you and she were part of the the usa team that that won that title beating czechoslovakia in the final when i when i say july 1986 in prague to you what what's sort of the first thing that comes to your mind Oh, there's a lot of things, but I'd say the first thing would be the personal tour that Martina gave to uh, Zena, Chrissy, and myself of of her home area, the the club where she grew up, um, the home cooked meal uh, that her mom helped prepare, and just you know getting away from the courts and the and the tournament and really stepping into the life that. We had never seen in person that Martina led, that led up to her defection. And then to, to realize that we were a part of, at that point in time, the most famous athlete who'd ever defected from their home country. 
and now was going back. And, and, and even though 1986, it was still before the Iron Curtain lifted. So there was still, it was still a really bold move. And, and Martina was not really recognized by uh, the Czech, Czechoslovakian Tennis Federation in the way that the other three players were recognized. She was never recognized by name at the tournament, um, but she was recognized by the crowd in probably some of the most emotional, um, n- noisy, enthusiastic crowd noises I've ever heard. Um, so it was interesting. It was sort of like the establishment was blocking saying her name over the PA system to the crowd. But the crowd was just lifting Martina up and, you know, showing their support, applauding, you know, her skill, her talent as being um, already a multiple, multiple major winner. had been number one in the world for a long time leading up to that 86 Fed Cup tie and to be able to share it with Chrissy, the greatest rivalry in the history of sports, having played 80 times in singles. And so Chrissy was there. And I think Chrissy being beside Martina back in Prague was probably the greatest part of that, um, that whole thing. Gosh, there's so much you, you've just said there that I want to, um, that I want to, to pick up on and get stuck into. She, she had defected in, in 1975 and, and had to write on her visa applications that she was stateless until 1981 when I think she got her United States citizenship. Um, this was the, biggest sporting event behind the iron curtain in a communist nation outside of the olympics it was it was absolutely huge i believe she had been denied a visa the year before in 1985 was it ever in doubt that that she would make this return martina oh i think that, i think it was in doubt up until um probably a week or two beforehand like something could have happened i mean you, if for those of us old enough to remember back to before the Iron Curtain was lifted. I mean, what what was really for sure if you came from a country like the United States? Um, there were a lot of um, mysteries and unknowns and uncertainties. So I, I don't think it was until we, we got there, got to the hotel, sort of had some normalcy of checking in, uh, like other Fed Cup ties, the par- you know, the opening party um, that made us you know, all realize, yeah, this is, this is going to happen. We're going to have an opportunity not just to compete, but hopefully be able to win this Fed Cup tie. And obviously anything we did that week was really had, had Martina in mind. It was really in her honor. We were celebrating her as a player, as a champion, her bravery coming back to her homeland, her being able to see her family again in her homeland. I mean, there were so many emotional moments, friends from childhood, um, it was, whew, it was, it was crazy. I mean, I wish we had iPhones back then and could have recorded more of those behind the scenes moments the way you can now. Can you remember the flight over? Can you remember what Martina was like on the flight over? Well, I fly, you know, it's, I was um, playing only doubles there. I wasn't going to play singles uh, and it was played the week after. I know we spoke earlier in our chat about um, the International Tennis Hall of Fame so they had a grass court tournament that was a WTA. It was the um, the New England stop of the WTA tour at Newport. So I always wanted to play any tournament on grass. So I got permission from the USTA to play Newport and then fly to Prague. So I flew on my own and I got there the morning of our first match, which was actually against China. 
1986, China, it was even unusual that China had a team playing in the Fed Cup. This was well before China had players at the highest level. Um, so I arrived, um, I was the last team member to arrive. So I kind of merged in easily because they were all great friends of mine. Um, but went from clay from grass courts in Newport to clay, uh, in Prague. So for me, it was a little different transition than the other three on the team. You mentioned this, this is kind of the huge divergence between the reception that, that Martina got from the fans and the people, which was just rapturous and, and so warm and, and the reception she got from from the federation and and the authorities were were either of those elements a surprise to to you to Martina to to the team in terms of the reception that she was going to get well i don't think we were surprised that the public was so as you say rapturous and supportive and grateful to be able to see probably the most famous athlete uh from Czechoslovakia ever um, but it did, I think it took us back, you know, we come from the United States, a, a free country where people are able to, you know, have freedoms that back then they didn't have in communist countries. So, but for us to actually hear the PA announcer say our name, you know, Chris Everett, Zena Garrison, Pam Shriver, and not be able to say the name of Martina Navratilova was just, that was that was really different for us. And, and um, we couldn't believe it. Uh, and I'm not sure there was any heads up. I just think it was like, all of a sudden we were like, wait, Martina's known as the player from the United States. That's, that's just crazy. And you can't, you can't imagine now in this day and age, but that's what it was back then. How on earth did you focus on the, on the tennis when all of that was going on? Not just obviously Martina herself, but you, the whole team. Well, I think it was pretty easy for us because um, we had obviously a clear goal in mind. We wanted to win the Fed Cup again and win in Prague for Martina. And once you start playing any tennis match anywhere, whether it's center court Wimbledon or a Fed Cup tie or a match in your hometown, you know, once you start, it's tennis and you figure out ways to settle in. And that's what that's what everybody did. And, um, you know, I, I, from what I remember, there was just one difficult moment. And Chrissy actually played that Fed Cup with a bit of a knee problem. And, Mar and Chrissy and Martina were two of the healthiest, most great champions with longevity. And they hardly had injuries. But Chrissy had a bit of a knee tendonitis. I remember she struggled in the match against Raffaella Reggie, I think, losing it. So it put we did have one doubles match where we were at 1-1. But for the most part, we were we were just too good for everybody, even against uh, Czechoslovakia in the final. Um, so once once we got into warm up and first ball, we we settled in. When I think of Martina as a as a tennis player and, and watching back some of her matches, she was such a machine on the court at, at her peak. You know, she just played with such purpose. You know, seeing her play on clay, just being so committed to to coming in and playing aggressively. But she's quite an emotional character off the court, isn't she? What what was she like emotions wise that week? And what effect did that, did that have on you? Well, from what I recall, it was one of the greatest jobs she ever did at managing her emotions. Um, but Martina had been through a lot of learning to do that. Okay. So this is 1986. It's eight years after she won her first major at Wimbledon at 78 over Chrissy. 
she had been through numerous different relationships. She had had the uh, um, the reporter sort of out her before she was, or she would, she tried to get ahead of it, and she knew she had to come out as as uh, as a lesbian. And that was in 1981. She had to sort of live through that. She had to live through um, the defection, getting her citizenship. A lot of her Wimbledon championships, because we all stayed in the village. I remember sometimes there was tumultuous things going on in her life and she was still able to step out on center court and play great finals, even with personal storms going on around her. So this is one of the things that Martina was able to do. Whatever was happening, whatever emotions that would have seemed maybe overwhelming and could be a distraction, she could compartmentalize. And even though she might have some emotions on the court, they never... Or, or very seldom, especially once she hit her stride in, say, like 1981 through, say, 88, she was very seldom knocked off her goal. Uh, really interesting. Uh, a few minutes ago, when you mentioned for you the, the most special aspect of that tie was Martina and Chrissy being part of the team together and going through that to get, together. They were already great, great rivals at that time I think they'd met 69 times at that point which is just extraordinary but then them also being teammates and I think there was a very warm moment between them during during the opening ceremony which must have been incredibly emotional for Martina can you just sort of expand a little bit more on on their relationship and and their experience together that week well I mean they're Rivalry, as you mentioned, they were already close to 70 matchups. They'd won major doubles tournaments together. They'd already played on teams, whether it was Fed Cup or Whiteman Cup, which was USA versus Great Britain. Um, they had known each other since the early 70s. So this was maybe 15 years into knowing each other when they ended up being in Prague. Um, and Chrissy knew that it was Martina's week. It was Martina's moment to make history for herself and Chrissy wasn't going to miss it, um, even with knee tendonitis. And, you know, it's not easy between Wimbledon and the U.S. Open with everybody scheduled to go to Prague in, in, on a clay court. But it was something that Chrissy w- wouldn't miss. And I think it shows you sort of the loyalty that Chrissy had towards the friendship and the rivalry. And it, it, it I thought they both handled it great. Two of the greatest champions in the history of women's tennis coming together on the same team at a historic moment. Um, and I thought Chrissy, Chrissy handled it all beautifully. Did it, did it feel historic at the time in, in that moment being a part of it? Did we yes. aware? Yeah. Yes. It felt really big. It felt, it, well, sometimes you can measure how big it feels by the number of media people around and the number of people who made the trip or could, could get visas to get in. And there was a lot, there was a lot of, um, extra media there, um, extra USTA people, um, ITF. I mean, everyone knew this was not just your normal team competition. It was, it really, it, it maybe was the most in tennis, the most, um, unique, tennis uh, team format uh, week ever. Um, and so that's what I remember is just so many more people. Like the, the next year it was in Vancouver, Canada. And then um, two years later we won it in Tokyo in what was Chrissy's last match ever uh, after the U.S. Open in 1989. But when I think about all the different Fed Cup matches or Whiteman Cup teams 
I mean, and even some Davis Cup matches that I've been able to go to, including the U.S. when they won um, their last Davis Cup tie. I mean, Davis Cup win for the year. This one will, I don't think, ever be repeated as far as um, not just tennis history, but really, in a way, kind of world history. Yeah, it's amazing. Martina sealed victory over Hannah Mandlikova in in the second singles rubber, but you still played the doubles and Mm -hmm. both countries fielded their strongest teams. You, you and Martina playing together. Was that, was that always the plan? I don't remember it not being the plan. I think, uh, as long as Martina was healthy, uh, and wanted to play that, she would have, she was going to play the doubles. And I think probably Martino wouldn't have minded winning uh three zero. And it was probably a better chance than if Zena and I played the doubles. Uh, I mean, Zena and I won a gold medal in 88. So it wasn't like, you know, we didn't know how to win big matches, but um, the sure thing was to, tr- you know, to have us. Cause again, that was in the middle of, Oh no, it was after we'd lost 85 Wimbledon. So our win streak was over, but still we'd only lost like, two or three times in the previous four years. So I think Martina was happy to beat Czechoslovakia 3-0. What were the celebrations like that evening? Well, they were pretty special because it was uh, Martina's family, um, friends, coaches, people she'd known from when she grew up, uh, obviously all the regular ITF officials, USTA officials, players. Um, It was it was pretty, it was pretty good. Um, you know, once again, though, because the establishment, I, you know, what I don't remember in detail enough is to know who actually ran the celebration dinner, whether it was the ITF. So they would have maybe recognized Martina in a different way, or did the ITF need to, um, be considerate and understand where the Czechoslovakian government was in, in hosting somebody who had defected was a big deal, much less, you know, it's sort of like meeting halfway didn't make them recognize her by name. I don't know what went on behind the scenes to sort of establish that kind of thing, but I'm sure there was probably a little bit of diplomacy going into it. Obviously, the Fed Cup finals, the the new format of the Fed Cup finals were, were due to be taking place, well, right now um, in Budapest this week. A kind of a return to, albeit not on the scale in terms of number of countries, I think there were 40 countries playing um, in Prague in 1986, but a return to something more like the, the format that was played back then. What what are your feelings about that that new new format with that in mind? Well, I re- I thought there were some great years of the format that we played under in the 70s and 80s, which is uh, one city, one country would host um, many, many countries. Uh, I, I think, obviously, when I think back to some of the ties uh, that, like the Davis Cup has always known up until this year, and then Fed Cup has known for the last, what, 15, 20 years, which is two countries play and there's always a partisan crowd that leads to a lot of excitement. But I feel like if, if it's the right city and country selected and they celebrate tennis, and this is, <laughs> I want to say this is back in the day when people could travel from their home countries to go cheer on the teams, you know, at a city like Vancouver back when I played. I mean, that was a, Vancouver hosted an amazing Fed Cup the year after Prague. Prague, it was packed. Not one, I don't remember a seat being vacant in any of the matches, especially that, you know, Czechoslovakia could play. So I think it's possible to have incredibly successful 
Fed Cup uh, weeks with multiple countries in one city, no doubt. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, Tennis Podcast listeners. David here. Now, you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well, that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs, so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering Tennis Podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. Just a couple of, of other points I wanted to to pick your brains about uh, you mentioned your olympic doubles gold with zena garrison in in seoul in 1988 which was the year that tennis of course returned to the olympics we get asked all the time and when we have interviewees on particularly obviously an olympic year as this was supposed to be about tennis in the olympics and where it sits within the sport and within within the olympic movement is it the pinnacle of the sport etc etc all of those all of those questions where where does that Olympic gold for you sit among your achievements in in your mind? Um, I'd say top three. Um, I'd say the first major win with Martina, 81 Wimbledon. Um, My U.S. Open singles when I was 16 playing in just my second major, uh, losing to Chris, beating Martina in the semis, losing to Chrissy. And the third one, I'd have to say, uh, would be winning the gold with Xena. And sometimes they're all three like on the same, they're, they're all three on the same pedestal because, you know, the Olympics, um, that was no sure thing. Xena and I hadn't played that much together. We'd known each other a long time. Um, but that was a final match against, uh, again, the, then that, now they, they were the Czech Republic, I believe. And it was Sukova and Novotna. 
And this match was like, I think it was like 9-7 in the third, and we won it on like our seventh or eighth match point. Xena served it out, but it was like, do sad, do sad. And it was like one of those games where you just have to figure out how two of you can keep breathing. Because we just kept having gold medal point after gold medal point after gold medal point, and we couldn't close it out, and finally we did. And I have pictures, I still have pictures of that when uh, in my house, and Xena and I, Still, when we see each other, we reminisce about that special time. Is the is the gold medal in your on your tro- now very clean no, trophy no. shelf? I actually donated it back two years after I won it in 1990 when uh, a good friend of mine, Joe Coleman, who was an executive in charge of Philip Morris, helped start women's tennis and the whole women's tennis tour. I gave it to the International Tennis Hall of Fame and in his honor the year he was being inducted. Cause I, I really felt a gold medal in the modern times, obviously tennis had been played in the Olympics back, you know, prior to whatever it was, 1940, but it, this was the first gold medal unless, you know, Groff had hers. And um, I'm trying to think on the men's side, was it Metchier won the goal anyway? So I just felt it was like the right thing to do, be able to have it on display at a place where a lot of people could see it versus I didn't have kids back then. I didn't, you know, I was just on my own. So it seemed like the right thing. So I don't have it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's incredibly generous of you. Just taking you back to to 10 years previous to that, 1978 US Open, you reached the final as an amateur. You beat Martina along the way as it goes. I read that you went back to high school the following Monday. Is is that right? What what are your memories of that? Oh, well, it was... um, yeah, it was the start of my senior year. I, I took some summer courses and I was kind of on an accelerated uh, graduate with minimum number of credits so I could get out on the tour, have like a gap year. But that's why I didn't turn pro yet is I wasn't sure if I, I, I was still maybe going to go to college. So what I remember is losing the finals US Open, which was actually on the Sunday because we had rain on the Friday. So women's semifinal couldn't finish till the Saturday. So that pushed, it was Chrissy and my final at four, followed by Connors Borg. So that was like a big card for 16-year-old amateur from Baltimore. And then I I either took the train or drove back down to Baltimore that night, and I went to school the next day. I'd already missed a few days of my senior year, and the headmaster of the school, Dr. Bill Mules, he made me speak to the entire student body at the at a a school-wide assembly. And, you know, it was a school about maybe a thousand students um, from grades kindergarten through 12th grade. But I could speak in on then Louis Armstrong was the main court, 18,000 people, national television audience on CBS. That was no problem for me. I could make that speech. But to go back to my high school, to my peers, to my you know, we were going to be the class of 1979 to my teachers. <laughs> that was a tough, that was a tough one. I remember being embarrassed, but I got through it. How much did life change for you afterwards? Were you able to go back to to, to being a normal high school kid or was everything completely um, different? Yeah, it was a bit of both. I mean, it was, it was pretty interesting because this was well before obviously social media, the things were very different. It was like, Here's some things that happened to me with the media. Like my mom and dad both said, okay, you're back. You go into school. There's no more media. You you have to go back to being like get back in your school routine. 
So I remember People Magazine actually showed up at our back door st- or our front door and knocked on the door. And my mom let them have it and sent them on their way. And then I remember like a couple of days after U.S. Open final, I actually had a black Camaro driving up the school. And this wasn't your normal like uh, school car. So and the guy rolled down the window uh, and he said, excuse me, do you know where I can find Pam Shriver? And I'm like, I'm looking at the guy thinking, <laughs> this is Pam Shriver. <laughs> so he was like from the National Enquirer asking for an interview. And I'm like, I think I answered two questions. And I said, my mom, I'm going to get in big trouble. I can't talk to you. <laughs> so but anyway, I went to my senior prom. I did the senior skits. I went to graduation. I did. I only played like four or five tournaments my senior year, and I didn't do very well. It was a combination of, you know, not being a normal pro player, um, but also having the expectations of being a U.S. Open finalist. I was like 10 or 11 in the world. So I went through a terrible 12 months after I got to that final, hardly won matches. So I can kind of relate the last few years when so many women had done well in a major, either won them or got to a final and then really couldn't back it up. I yeah, get it. What yeah? What perspective does that experience give you on on young players breaking through at a at a precociously young age and and rising to to prominence? Obviously, we've had this extraordinary example in the last year of of Coco Goff doing that, and there's actually been an interesting interview with her come out today in, in behind the racket talking about some of the struggles she's had. What I mean, you've had an experience like that that so few people have. What perspective does that that give you on it all? Well, I think the biggest difference on the plus side for Coco is that she's a total pro right now. I mean, I know she's still limited somewhat and, well, everybody's limited. They can't play any tournaments. But let's say back before the pandemic, it was a little bit of a discussion like, is the age eligibility rule a good thing or a bad thing? But basically, she is behaving as if, and she is a pro. She's collecting prize money, endorsements. She's training. She's got a full team. That was really different back in my situation where um, I went back into a high school where I wasn't taking it online. I was going to uh, you know regular school. I probably maybe had half the practice time as I would have leading into the U.S. Open. Um, but I still felt when I did go out to play, I felt just tons of pressure to like, reproduce or play the same I did that U.S. Open final and I just wasn't you know I really wasn't prepared Uh, both prepared from a training standpoint I wasn't prepared emotionally to back it up and it took like uh, 18 months before I was comfortable again just um just final couple of points jumping around in time a bit here but you're now obviously hugely established as as a broadcaster in tennis how how was that transition for you initially going from being a, a professional player to, to to stepping into the broadcasting world? Well, it's kind of an interesting journey because I had a couple of different transitions. Um, the first time I was ever asked to broadcast was by uh, CBS back in 1981. So I was 19 years of age. 1981, they didn't have Mary Carrillo yet as a full-time. They didn't have any full-time female commentators. So what CBS would do is they had a, had a small group of guest female commentators like Virginia Wade, Billie Jean King. And then they kind of liked, I think they liked what I saw, what they saw from me in 78 and how I carried myself with the media. So they asked me and I took the opportunity. I said, yes, I would do it. So um, that was 1981. I did a lot of US Opens um, in the 80s 
after I would say lose, or if I'd already, if I had a day where I didn't have a match, they'd say, will you come in and do Martin? Will you be in the booth for Martina's match or a certain match? I said, sure. So I took advantage of that opportunity back in the early eighties. Then flash ahead to 1990, which was, I lost early at the Australian open. And then uh, ESPN asked me if I would work as a courtside reporter and an outside court commentator for the rest of the tournament. And I said, yes. So that started, um, my relationship with ESPN and I've worked every year for them, uh, either part-time, obviously when I was playing, I didn't retire till 97. And then the time where I really became my, my primary career was when I retired from playing professional tennis, which was February 97. It's been great. I've loved the connection still to, especially to major tennis. ESPN has three of the four majors from first ball to last they're the worldwide leader in sports. We have a great team, you know, from Chris Everett to the McEnroe brothers to Chris Fowler, McKendry, Darren Cahill, Brad Gilbert. I mean, I, I'm going to forget some people, but we have just a knowledgeable, fun, Mary Jo Fernandez and I've worked together, Cliff Drysdale. Just we have an amazing group of people at ESPN. And obviously we're, we're all longing to get back together like everybody else. Adrenaline wise, how does broadcasting compare to playing? Well, it's interesting. Well, not really, but sort of like when you're in the middle of calling an incredibly tight match, your adrenaline runs a little bit from your memory of having played them. Like I think my adrenaline or anybody who's played at at a high level, their adrenaline will run differently at five all in the third set, then say somebody who's a professional broadcaster who's never actually been at five all in the third set at center court Wimbledon. So what you have to, and what I've learned to do, I think through maturity of my broadcasting career is career is when the adrenaline kicks up, you have a lot of energy. And one way you can let out your energy is by talking. But sometimes most times when your energy is at its highest is when you should be at your quietest. So you have to be very, it's counterintuitive, but you have to be really disciplined and measured and, and maybe find a different way of letting out the energy. Like sometimes I'll stand up uh, in the booth. Uh, there's been times where Chrissy and I've worked together on a match. I remember the U S open with Taylor Townsend at six all in the final set. We like held hands through the tie break. Combina- you know, it was a combination of just like a place to have our, we were like squeezing our hands partially so we just didn't start talking when we had so much adrenaline and interest and excitement in this match that we were watching. So I don't know. It's it's fun to see tennis history written, whether you're playing in it or whether you like to be able to see with the history that's been written the last ten years in tennis has been extraordinary. So interesting. Um, ha- look, none of us are are experts on the the current situation that we're seeing. Everybody's in totally uncharted waters and and seeing it unfold before our eyes. But how how optimistic do you feel about seeing tennis again this year? Well, you know, there's been times where I've been I've, I'm thinking, how can it? Because we have a global sport with people coming from all parts of the world. Um, how can it happen? Um, it certainly can't happen in front of crowds, uh, that we've had in the past at big tournaments. It's going to have to be played in front of either nobody or practicing social distance somehow has to be done in safe ways. I I've seen certain models where, uh, players fly 
to uh, an area of, of the world, let's say it's the United States two weeks for the open, but they have to quarantine uh, for a certain period of time, still figuring out how to practice under quarantine situations, all stay at the you know, similar hotel, same hotel, whatever it is, have, they're going to have to have different rules during this pandemic if it happens at all. There is a chance, just like the way major colleges and universities are saying, we can't safely bring students back to a campus, um, have them dine together, room together, um, dormitories, classrooms. We can't do this from people all because universities have people come from all over the globe. So there's a part of me that just feels it can't happen safely until there's an inoculation, until there's better testing and everything that the doctors have been talking about. But I do think some smart people, um, including like obviously Tennis Australia, who are lucky enough to get this thing just in the nick of time, because I remember I was in Melbourne, second week of Melbourne this year when I heard about the virus coming out of Wuhan. Um, they just got theirs in and they're already fig- trying to figure out, have models to how you can hold an Australian Open in January of next year under these circumstances. So I think if I were a business person in charge of, say, the USTA, um, obviously, Wimbledon's made their decision. They had great insurance. You know, you'd have to come up with safe models of how it could be done and then see if the tennis unity, which I love the organizations, how they've gotten together, taking the French aside. I love the unity that I've seen. I think there's going to be some really good things come out of this on the other side. I like the way the ATP and the WTA are more unified now than ever. Um, so let's celebrate what's going to happen, whether or not it's going to happen in six months, nine months, 18 months. I think tennis is in a strong situation coming out of it, but we're going to have some pain in the meantime. So you believe the, that, that unity that, that we're seeing is something that could last? It, yes, I, it certainly should last. And if it doesn't, then shame on the leaders of today. I think we have enough new leaders. I think the new leadership of the ATP tour, new leadership at the USTA. I think Steve Simon at the WTA has always been a willing partner. Um, I think everybody realizes, everybody's had to come together. This this has been a major trauma that is playing out everywhere on the planet. And I mean, unless you were alive in 1917, you don't understand this. I mean, 9-11 was, was something similar, but really different. Um just in the amount of trauma people say in the U.S. especially felt. Um, but it was worldwide as well, um, 9-11. But it, this is really different because it's your health and it's, there's so many unknowns. And, you know, we have, to, we have to figure out the new way of doing business um, during a global pandemic and then after the global pandemic. How do you feel about tennis behind closed doors without crowds? Well, listen, people, the television audience is (laughs) never been bigger. I mean, people are sitting at home uh, waiting, waiting for great content. So I do think tennis is a sport, especially singles. It is a sport that's actually built for play during a global pandemic. I think team sports are going to be actually have many more challenges because if one member of the team gets it, then the whole it ha- it has to shut down, like we saw with the NBA. But you know, I'm I, I just think in in singles, if if somebody gets it, I don't think the whole tournament cancels. I think that player, and then you do the contact tracing, 
doubles is kind of interesting because there's physical contact. Um, you know, there's close contact. So I don't, I don't know if doubles is the same. Maybe doubles is made up of just singles players during the pandemic. I don't know. I know I'm saying some things that doubles players are, would be horrified, or maybe you have separate doubles tournaments from singles. From I don't know, but there's got to be a lot of people coming up with some ideas behind closed doors that could possibly float. Final question for you, Pam. I, I realize it, it's a tough one to end on because it's asking you to look into the future, which I know is so uncertain at the moment. But everybody is constantly being asked who are going to be the winners and who are going to be the, the losers from this. You know, Serena, Federer, we've got a lot of aging greats in the game at the moment and a lot of exciting young players that are injured, for example. Who do you see as the... You know, obviously, the the virus and the serious stuff that's going on aside, you know, there are no big picture winners. But in tennis terms, who do yeah. you see as the winners and losers? Well, first off, um, obviously, timing-wise, late in careers like Federer and Serena, missing majors does not help their chase to history. But you can never, ever look at the of, of Federer and Serena and ever say <laughs> that they're not winners. They're winners, regardless of if, if their career, if they happen to retire during the global pandemic, does you know, whatever they come to terms with, they're they're winners and will always be seen as great winners. But obviously they have they have a lot to lose during this period. But some so does someone like Coco Goff, who had some momentum, is on the way up. Sophia Kennan, I feel for her, having won the last major, got to four in the world stopped, stopped her momentum and track. So, but I really think the winners are going to be people who handle it mentally the best. They can also look at it as an opportunity to totally rest their bodies from years of training. A lot of these players, you know, this is, look at it as a gift. Look at the gratitude of like having everybody on forced rest. Um, rest and recover and then train and be prepared. And if you're mentally going to hang on to what you've lost, then you're going to come out not as strong as the person who looks at the things they're gaining by having the rest time, rebuilding, maybe think of their mental strength and how they can come out and be a better player. I, you know, the pause will do some careers good. And obviously some people are, are going to lose some opportunities. Pam, it's absolutely fascinating. It's been um, it's been a real treat to chat to you and, and pick your brains on so many subjects. It really has. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, Catherine, thank you for having me. All the best. Stay safe. Stay home. Yeah, <laughs> likewise, Pam. Best to, to you and yours. It's, it's really been a pleasure. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.